Welcome back to another episode of FAIR, Faithful Answers to New Testament Questions. My name is Jennifer Roach, and we are going to talk today about paid ministry. This is a question that comes up between evangelicals and Latter-day Saints a lot, so I thought it would be really fun to explore this one. As you know, we are going through the Come Follow Me readings and picking out questions that your evangelical friends or family might have um, kind of based on those readings. Our purpose here is not um, for you to fuel a debate with them, but to be able to understand where they're coming from so that maybe you can explain some of our beliefs to them in ways that seem meaningful to them. So today's verse comes from Mark chapter six, and this is what we get. This is um, seven through nine in the English Standard Version. And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. One tunic apparently was okay, two was too much. Um, so there's so much in this verse alone to talk about. We are just going to pull out the question um, about paid ministry. We want to look at some of the differences between evangelicals and Latter-day Saints on this and really try to answer the question, is it right to pay clergy? Why do they do it? Why don't we do it or do we do it? Um, so yeah, here we go. So first off, full disclosure here, I have been on both sides of this fence I have worked for Christian churches most of my life. I earned a full-time income with benefits doing that um, and had no problem with it. Never even really considered, to be honest, if it was right or wrong. It's just what you did. Um, and I did that for years. And our, um, our family was supported by that. Now, as a Latter-day Saint, I can look at that and see the problems in a in a different way. And, and you'll hear some of that come out today. Um, I also want to point out that while it's true that our church does in fact have some paid clergy, our senior leaders work full time and are paid for their work, the vast majority are not paid. So the answer here about why we do this, it, it has to be at least a little bit nuanced, right? Because of that fact. So the, the question isn't even, is it right to pay clergy? The question is something closer to, under what conditions should clergy be paid? Maybe what happens when you do? What are the, the intended and unintended consequences of that? Um, so as always, we will start with how evangelicals think on this issue. And, and I wanna start with the practical reasons. There are some practical reasons they do what they do, and there are some values-based reasons they do what they do. We're gonna start with practical. So first you need to understand how an evangelical becomes a paid clergy person. There, there are some exceptions to this rule. It's not like there's an evangelical handbook and, and these are the rules you have to follow. But in general, what happens is that a person gets a four-year undergraduate degree followed by a four-year master in divinity. We call it an MDiv. Um, that's a degree where you, you learn Greek and Hebrew, you learn how to preach, you learn church history, you learn theology, you learn all, kind, all kinds of stuff. 
Um, there are some church positions where you can get away with a two-year, like a master's in theology degree, but that's, that's rarer. The standard route is to get an MDiv. I know this route very well. You will notice on my credentials, I have an MDiv. Um, I, I loved it. It was a fantastic program. I went full-time for four years. I loved every single second of it. Um, MDivs come with a pretty hefty price tag, mine did too. Um, and so the people who take one, they're either very serious amateur students of theology, and they're just there to learn for the love of learning. And there are quite a number of people who do that in the evangelical world. Or most commonly, they are people hoping to work in a church environment, in part because they need to pay off their student loan. <laughs> um, so right out of the gate, on a very practical level, you can see why evangelicals are set up for a paid ministry situation. And while there are some outliers, um, past, American pastors make roughly $80,000 a year. It's probably, that's a that's a two-year-old statistic. Maybe it's bumped up a little bit since then. There's certainly some less. There's, there's some quite a bit more. Um, so it's not like they're all living in, in giant mansions, Joel Osteen style, right? Most of them, an $80,000 job year is a pretty normal kind of middle-class job. The tax situation in the United States does make this a little bit more livable for them because a pretty large chunk of that salary can be claimed as a housing allowance, which is not taxable income. So they get a pretty sizable tax break on what's going with, on with them. So evangelicals kind of love to cite this, that even the American tax system is set up with the expectation that ministers are paid. The third practical reason um, is that most of the time being a paid minister is a full-time job for them, meaning they don't have the opportunity to work a regular day job and get income. They're normal human beings with families and need to have income. Um, so when the job is a full-time position, that's what happens, right? Um, so those are sort of the practical reasons why they do it. Moving from the practical to their values-based reasons, evangelicals, the, the values that cause evangelicals to do this, they make sense to them. And I think you'll see they make a little bit of sense to us too. Um, first, as their name suggests, evangelicals, they are very interested in um, sharing the message of Christ and helping people understand that. That's what this movement has been all about. And while the, the, the roughly 75-year history of evangelicals, it's always including paid, paid clergy, the idea really found feet in the example of a church um, in Chicago called Willow Creek. Maybe you have heard of it. Willow, Willow Creek was the first of its kind. There was nothing like this. Now there's dozens, maybe hundreds of churches that are similar to this. When they first came on the scene in the 1970s and then into the 80s, nobody else was doing what they were doing. Um, one, of their, one of their uniquenesses was they decided to make a change 
on what was happening philosophically on a Sunday morning. So for forever, Protestants and evangelicals alike, their Sunday mornings have been set up very similar to how our Sunday mornings in a Latter-day Saint congregation are set up. It's there for the worship of the members of the church and people who are investigating or curious or friends or family member. They are always welcome. They will be warmly greeted. But the service doesn't really revolve around them. It's it's for the members to be able to be there to worship. Well, what Willow Creek did was flip that on its head and said, no, no, no. Sunday mornings should become a showcase of what the church has to offer um, people that they called seekers. And they go on with this model to become the largest church in America for quite a long time. And their influence was felt in every evangelical church across the country. So a typical little church on the corner in some small or medium-sized town would normally have one paid minister working along with a group of volunteers um, to present a Sunday morning worship service. At one time, Willow Creek employed hundreds of people all time to produce what they would call television quality services for Sunday mornings. No longer was it good enough to have a volunteer up there playing their guitar or playing the piano they began employing professional musicians, studio musicians, um, some who were members of the church, some who had no faith at all. The value was to present good music, not to involve necessarily the members of the congregation. The rationale for all of this was that someone who was interested in the church, but wasn't a believing Christian yet, that they needed a very specific kind of experience in order to feel comfortable. Willow Creek coins the term seeker-sensitive to describe their services, meaning that every single thing that happens on a Sunday morning is looked through the lens of how would a unchurched, another term that they coin, how would an unchurched person see or understand this service? Would they feel welcomed by this or that element? Willow Creek believed that seekers should be given the most professional presentation possible in order to get them more interested in Jesus. And pretty soon, every other church in the country was trying to imitate them, at least among the evangelical churches. So the average church on the corner that went from one pastor and some volunteers now has this pressure on them to go to multiple pastors plus other paid staff workers who would produce services for them of a very, very different quality than had ever really been done um, in the history of the Protestant church. This fed the expectation um, that churches would grow, right? And they did in the 1980s and 1990s, evangelical churches by and large grew a lot. The downside, the part that doesn't get talked about a lot, is that a lot of this growth happened because the small little church on the corner with one pastor and some volunteers didn't have the financial resources to put on this kind of production every single Sunday morning. So even when they tried, the finances became a problem. And, and 
they eat what happens is they either end up shutting down um, because of the finances they shut down because their members leave to go to another church that can do it that's actually the most common reason um, why small churches really really decline during this era era some churches um combine they they merge with another church um, especially if they're in the same denomination that can happen um so it, during the during the 80s and 90s it used to be there were just a handful of very large churches and a whole bunch of mostly tiny churches 200 members or less and then a growing number in the middle whereas today there's a very, very large number of really big churches and a very small number of, of little of small churches simply because they can't afford to to staff the programs at the level that people are expecting. And to be honest, the whole experiment doesn't go all that well for Willow Creek either. Um, they certainly had their heyday and in the evangelical world, everybody knew who they were and what they were doing. Uh, there were some sexual scandals happening in the top leadership of that church. They weren't de dealt with very well. They lost well over half their congregation over this, but still had extremely large buildings and a lot of property to finance. I think they had um, at one point a 200 acre campus for their church building. Um, and you can imagine that takes a lot of people um, with tithes and offerings to, to pay for that. And so when you lose half your church, it, it's a big problem. I, I tell you all of this to illustrate that the evangelical value of producing services for seekers is part of why they have driven the need to pay people to do the work. It doesn't always work out for them, but there are, and Willow Creek is a cautionary tale. It works out terrible for them, uh, but there are plenty of other churches where it seems to work out for them, at least for now. And to be fair to them, the value behind doing this, wanting seekers to understand more about Christ is not bad. It's even admirable. We, we would endorse that value, right? There were not enough checks and balances in a system like that to keep it on the rails as the decades go by. We'll come back to that in a minute. Another value held by evangelicals that influences them here that members of a congregation are seen a little bit differently than members of a, a Latter-day Saint congregation are seen. Their members are seen as people who need to be taken care of, need to be fed, um, they need to receive what could kind of bluntly be called like excellent customer service. I, I mean this in the very best way possible. Evangelicals want people to feel like I am at this church, I am getting my needs taken care of, and that's gonna make me stay here. It's not that they don't necessarily think people can do some of the work of the church, is that they want them to feel that the church really, really cares about them and their needs and their problems and their desires, and that therefore God cares about those things too. The church doesn't want to put too much of a burden on even a willing volunteer because when that volunteer goes out of town for a week, the job isn't going to get done and somebody else in the church will end up not feeling cared for. Right? And that's a 
very big problem for them. They are very much trying to avoid that. The, because the, the most important jobs in their church are paid positions, um, the work gets done a little bit more consistently. Paid work comes with different expectations than volunteer work. It just does. Um, a volunteer and a paid worker both sometimes go out of town, but there is a different set of expectations for the paid worker than for the volunteer in terms of how things will be taken care of in their absence. Um, that you, can, you can imagine all of the differences, right? So when an evangelical church hires someone to be, say, the pastor of middle schoolers, yes, that is a thing. Um, part of why they're doing that is so that the people in attendance have a reliable go-to source for that area of ministry. To put it bluntly, their view would be volunteers flake out. It's harder for employees to do so, or at least there's consequences when they do. These churches place a very high value on, on sort of the customer service experience of the members and they don't want volunteers messing that up, to be honest. Um, they would probably say that in, in a little bit different way, but that's really the sort of blunt version of it. Now, Latter-day Saints, <laughs> the thing you will notice in that discussion is that I use the word volunteer a lot to describe these non-paid positions. And you probably notice that volunteers are are held in a slightly lower status. They're given slightly less standards. They're not actually seen as very reliable. They're not trusted with really important jobs in the church. I think you get a sense of why they're doing that. But let's just contrast it with, with what we're doing, at least from my point of view. Um, in our church, you are not a volunteer. You are called, sustained, and set apart non-paid workers are not given unimportant jobs in our church. They're given all the jobs. <laughs> and we see these positions not as just being good for the church, presenting a professional slick image on Sunday mornings, but they're good for the people who hold them. Whether you work in the nursery or you're the bishop, that calling is responsibility where you will help shoulder the weight of the congregation it, and we will all do that together. It's part of what shapes our faith, shapes our spirituality. Church is not something we pay other people to do and we attend. Um, it's something that we co-create together. The trade-off, you know better than I do, um, is that Sister Jones might not be very good at giving sacrament meeting talks, um, but we all have to listen to her once a year or Brother Miller hasn't been able to figure out how to log on to Family Search, but he's still called as a family history consultant. Um, but it is really, really good for Sister Jones to give a talk, even if she's not very good at it. It helps shape her ability to study and articulate her own faith. In an evangelical church, if you are not good at something, you will not be doing it for very long, even if you are a volunteer, because that's going to impact somebody else's experience, and that is the highest value. The value is on impressing seekers, impressing outsiders, while our value is more about shaping the spiritual life of the saints who are there. 
But we are still left with one question, um, which I pointed at the beginning of this video, is that our system um, of calling people, if we're going to call that a really, really good system, it's really good for your soul, it's really good for shaping your spiritual life, why do we have any paid clergy at all? Right? Why do we pay our top leaders in our church? If it's so good for us, why isn't it good for them? And I think it's a fair question. It's a little bit cynical of a question, but it's a fair question. Um, and I don't have the definitive answer, but I will tell you what I think. If you remember early earlier in this video, I mentioned that the secret church, Willow Creek, and it sort of falls apart in the end. They still exist in a in a much diminished um, reality of what they used to be. The, the obvious reasons for why that happened, why this church fell apart, is that the man who founded it and led it for decades had poor moral character as evidenced by the abusive acts that he committed. Like that's the obvious reason. The less obvious reason is that he didn't have anybody above him. He had no accountability. He didn't answer to anyone. He started that church. He founded it. He named it. He led it. He preached at it. He was it. There was no one to even have the equivalent conversation that we would have in a temple recommend interview that we get every two years. He had no accountability and it was not good for him. I think he started out with good motives and the spot he ended up putting himself in was as a evangelical celebrity, and that is not good for your soul. The other, the other thing at play here is evangelicals don't conceptualize ministers as priesthood holders. So the pastor of that church, he was, he would not have even seen himself accountable to God in the same way that our prophet would. It, it's not the same construct for them. I don't have time to explain what all of that is. We've talked about that a little bit in an earlier video on priesthood. Um, in our in our language, um, that pastor was like a bishop without a stake president, and certainly without area authorities, and certainly without general authorities. He was just on his own. So in our church, you can see how everybody has someone above them not only to answer to, but that they are ideally supported by. Even our prophet answers to God in a way that an evangelical pastor does not. And when you are a worldwide church, it eventually requires a small number of people who are given a different calling than the rest of us. They are called to work full-time to try and keep this thing on the rails so that the rest of us can enjoy the blessings that come with ordinary ward life, callings and releasings and working together and the goodness and soul formation that comes from that. We actually need a structure that goes all the way to the top so that the majority of us can be kind of sheltered in the orderliness and the ordinariness of being an award and having a ward family and having a calling and getting released and getting a new calling. Um, our, our leaders who are paid are making sure that we stay on the rails so that everybody else gets the goodness of that. I think it's a really beautiful thing. Um, 
I hope you have enjoyed this video on paid clergy. If you have questions, please put them down below in the comments, or you can um, hit me up in email, jroach at fairlatterdaysaints.org. Would love to hear from you, and I will see you in the next video.